now I'm on. Uh, you were gracious in allowing me some time off, and I went uh, literally uh, this, this time last uh, Sunday, I was in Telluride, Colorado, like working my way up to Bridal Veil Falls, and uh, then uh, Monday morning before the conference that I went to started, I went and did some fly fishing and had a great time, and just really it was a time of restoration for my soul, and hopefully you'll benefit from that because uh, it, was, it was a really important time for me, and so thank you for your generosity of allowing me to have some time off to be able to go and do those sorts of things. I try every other year, uh, like one, on the, on the main year, I'll go and do some sort of spiritual retreat, and then on the off years, I try to go and do some sort of like uh, educational sharpening up my, my uh, yeah, just sharpening up the academic side of my brain. And so that's what I was doing last week, but I was able to mix in some leisure with that also. So anyway, after going and getting my nerd on in a lot of different ways, I'm here to share some of that with you. One of the things uh, that I did not learn last week, but I learned this morning, is the definition of the word tease hole. Anybody know what a tease hole is? It's not what you think. <laughs> it is an opening in a glass-making furnace for fuel. And so I have to work tease hole into uh, this conversation with you all today um, in some way, uh, or, else, or else I owe the youth group donuts next Sunday. So I may just be like, you get the donuts. Let's just go with the donuts. I'm not sure how that's going to work. I don't know why you all act like that's a weird word. Would somebody please explain that to me? All right, so here we go. We're going to jump right in. This first question is, do you feel that if you were baptized as a young adult, but you strayed from the commandments and are turning your life around, uh, turning your life around now, should you be baptized again? Long answer short, no. As a United Methodist pastor, I believe that baptism is once and it is for all. It's akin to the grace and love of God. Once you accept that, once you, under, once you know that God loves you, once you have that within you, it never leaves. You may not feel it. It may not be an emotional connection for you, but it's real and it's there. And so there's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you less, and there's nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more. You are loved, and there's absolutely nothing that you can do about that. You can't get baptized to cause God to love you. You can't screw up your whole life and then get baptized again to cause God to love you more. Like, that's just not how this works. You are loved. And baptism is a representation of that. So whether you were an infant when you were baptized or whether you were 92 years old when you were baptized, that baptism is forever. And the other thing is baptism is not a salvific thing. Like, you are not saved through your baptism. You are saved by grace and that is where your salvation come, comes from. Baptism is you making a public profession, if you're an adult, to say, I love God and God loves me and I'm doing this thing to show a commitment. If you're an infant when you were baptized, that's the community that you were baptized into saying, we recognize that God loves this child before this child could even understand how to love God back. And it's a big deal all around. I will say this, however, if you want to do what we call a reaffirmation of your baptism, which is um, essentially because exactly what it sounds like, reaffirming it with water, we can do that. There is, there is a way that we can go about doing that, which will hopefully be meaningful for you and the community that we're part of here. So uh, I hope 
the, if you wrote that question, that answers it clearly for you. If not, um, any of these, talk to me afterwards. You can even raise your hand and ask for clarification on some of it. Uh, why do we say different versions of the affirmation of faith? So if this is your first time here, or if you don't know what affirmation of faith is, here's the explanation. So after I finish preaching, some words will pop up on that screen that basically say we believe in God the Creator, we believe in the Son of God, Jesus, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe that the church, of, that the church matters. And we say that in a lot of different ways. And the reason we say that in so many different ways over a period of time is because as many people are in this room right now, there are that many different ways of explaining what it is that we believe as a church. And I believe deeply that we come here to practice what we do outside of this place. And so St. Uh, Francis is, is uh, given credit for saying, preach the gospel at all times and use words if you must. And I believe we must. There's a time when people ask us what we believe and we should be able to express that in some way. And so we practice doing that. And I wanna give you as many options and as many ways of understanding that that make sense to you as possible. So that's why we switch up the affirmation of faith. They're all different variations of the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, in the Methodist Church, we use the Apostles' Creed over the Nicene Creed, but we could use the Nicene Creed too. Good question, or good follow-up. Um, are there theological foundations for having a sense of humor? You just answered the question. There are. Um, and I don't know like, if somebody's looking for me to point them in the direction of a theologian that writes about the theology of play and the theology of fun. There are those people. Uh, Leonard Sweet, who writes about 30 books a year, it feels like, wrote a book several years ago talking about the theology of play um, that I really, really enjoy. I cannot remember the name of it right now. I should go to my office between services and look that, find that one. But um, You'll know it by the title. If you just get on Amazon and search Leonard Sweet author and scroll through his books, you'll, you'll see the book I'm talking about. The title's pretty obvious. Um, but the way that I explained this in the first service, there was a, a like probably eight-month-old baby in the back of the room. And I said, I guarantee you that that baby smiles and laughs and giggles and that that baby is created in the image of God as are we, and that baby is like the purest form of a human being, right? And so it's the purest form of like what God would have us be. And so if we can see a baby having fun and laughing and playing, then for sure God wants us to also. And so I would hate if we were a boring church that was like, you can't have fun in church. In fact, that when I was in youth ministry, that was one of my favorite things to say to kids when they were like goofing off, it's like cut it out, this is church, you can't have fun here. And that like caused them to be even more crazy and rambunctious, so. Um, this is a question, I, I wish the kids were still in here. It looks like a kid's handwriting. If you ask this question, forgive me for judging your handwriting as a kid's handwriting. <laughs> but the question is, how old was Jesus when he started preaching? Young, he was young. Uh, the earliest time I can think of that I would think of uh, of Jesus' preaching, he was probably 12 or 13. It was around his bar mitzvah. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. And he and his family had gone from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And they were with a whole bunch of people. And they left Jerusalem to go back to Nazareth, his hometown. And they get about halfway there and they realize that Jesus isn't with them. 
And so they turn around and go back to find Jesus, and they find him on the steps of the temple having conversations with the priests. And, and the scripture tells us that the priests were amazed at his, his questions. And the way that, that Jewish uh, rabbis and priests would preach back then especially was through questions. So they would say things like, is it right to pay taxes? And Jesus would say things like, do you have a coin? And they would say, I have a coin. And he would say, can I see the coin? So constantly asking questions to kind of teach the point. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to, give to God what is God's is how that sermon ended. And so Jesus, at about 13 years old, started preaching. He didn't start, we would say he didn't start his official ministry until he was 29, 30, somewhere in there. But yeah, so if you are the kid who wrote this, we should talk. Because I have a feeling that if you're interested in how old Jesus was when he started preaching, God may be inviting you to be a preacher of some sort. And we should have a conversation about that. You like that word, Kathy, inviting? Can you please, no, I'm not doing that one. That, that one uh, is a like big, broad, general Methodist nerd question, and you're not all nerdy like that. Um, so it was about, it was about, it was about, meth, it was about Methodist polity and some of the issues going on within our larger worldwide denomination at this point. If you know what I'm talking about and you wrote that question, come talk to me. But I don't think it's a conversation we wanna have for the general public at this point anyway. So why does it seem that observing the Sabbath has lost importance, especially compared to the other nine commandments? And then follow up, how can we start keeping the Sabbath in 2018? Uh, well, I, I would argue that keeping the Sabbath has not lost importance that it's just as important as it has ever been. In fact, in our culture, it may be like really, really important. And so if you wrote this question, you may be kind of getting into the political thing of like why are stores open on Sundays and that sort of stuff. But you know, Sabbath is an individual thing. And, and it's for us. We, we're not, like the Sabbath was created to serve us, not to serve the Sabbath is what Jesus said. And so for me, I Sabbath on Fridays, because guess what I do on Sundays? I work, that's really the only day of the week I work if you ask some people, but <laughs> I Sabbath on Fridays and I'm really careful about what I do on a Friday. I'm intentional about kind of the spiritual development that I do and I'm intentional about what I will do and what I won't do. I'm intentional about whose phone calls I'll answer and whose phone calls I won't. Sometimes I'll put my phone on emergency contact only because I have told Kathy, like, don't call me unless the church is burning down or somebody has died. Like, I need that time. It's really important, and here's why. There's a book I read several years ago called The Year of Plenty, and it's a short, thin little, it's the best Christian living book that I've ever read. And this family, he's a pastor, was a pastor in Western Oregon, they decided that for an entire year, they were only going to consume things that they could get from within, it had to either be produced, grown, made, or be or, or it had to be a used product. And they had to be able to get it within 100 miles of their home. And so they realized that in Western Oregon, in the winter, when they started this project, basically the only thing that is grown is winter squash. And so in the chapter where he's talking about learning about Sabbath, 
He's like, we really screwed up by starting this project in the winter time when we couldn't store up food for the winter in the fall. And um, so they just ate a whole bunch of winter squash as far as vegetables go that winter. But he said the winter time is the time of Sabbath for the land. It's the time that things die and fall into the earth and you kind of cultivate that into the earth to create a richer soil. And he said Sabbath for us is the time of resting and preparation for the rest of the time. And so if you're a person that prides yourself on being really busy, you should back off of that for one thing and find a day that you can actually have Sabbath. And the Sabbath is productive in that it is preparing you for the rest of the week. It's getting your soul ready for the rest of the week. And so I would say that we haven't really lost the importance. Like it's, it's as important, but somehow our culture has placed a high priority on being able to say, oh, I'm so busy. How are you going? I'm, I'm busy. I'm so busy. What if we said like, I'm doing really good because this last week I took a day and I just focused on my soul and preparing for the rest of the week. That would be counter-cultural. And maybe we should start trying to be those kinds of people in 2018. Uh, this question is, how is it going with growth groups? You may or may not know that our church has growth groups. That's our version of what we call small groups that meet in homes, have a meal together, do some studying, do some conversation, intentional growth together. They're going really well. We have about 90 people in growth groups at this point. If you're interested in being in a growth group and you're not in one yet, you should talk to me and Kathy after this service and we'll make sure we get your name and information and that we have all of your contacts because we will try our best to get you in a group. If, you're, if you've been telling us you wanna be in a group and you're not in a group yet, one of the problems that we're having is a really good problem. We don't have enough people to lead. Our goal was to have 100 people by the end of the year in growth groups and we ha already have over 90. And so uh, we, we, it, it, we hit a nerve and it's grown and has become a bigger thing than we thought it was going to be faster. So help us with that if you would like. Um, I'm confused about death and resurrection. When one dies, does one go straight to heaven slash hell? Or if so, what about the last resurrection? So I'm confused about this also. And one of the things I need to say, I should have said up front, is like, this is just my opinion. I, I mean, yes, I went to seminary. Yes, I'm a theology nerd. I like to read a lot of theology. I like to study the way people think about God. But that doesn't mean that I have all of the answers. And so I'm confused about some of the things in the Bible also. And I think it's okay for us to be confused about them. I think a lot of times God is like, just figure it out. Like there's a place in the Bible where God tells the Hebrew people to make prayer shawls. And they give really, he gives really detailed instructions about how to do this. And so it's like cut a cloth into a circle and put a hole in the circle. And then in the corners, uh, in the corners of the circle, put prayer tassels. Well, you tell me where the corners of a circle are. You know, I mean, it's, there's no real answer to that. I think God is sometimes like, just figure it out. Have faith that what you're doing is the best you can do, and God's going to take care of the perfection of it. And so um, here's what I think about death. I think on this side of it, we're really afraid. Because our experience on this side of it is grief, and grief hurts. But I also think that grief is a good thing because grief 
is a sign of love that is lost. And a life lived without grief is a life lived without love. And that's sad. And so, uh, yes, we don't like that process of grieving, but that's not the only experience of death. I think that when we die, it's like this really fast transition. Like, I remember... um, I remember the first day of sixth grade, my first day of middle school. I remember getting out of my mom's car and walking down this path and being terrified. And then I remember seeing a guy named Brian Wright, and that's, that's it, like the rest of the day was golden. But there was a scary part of that transition, right? And then it was over. And then the, like sixth grade was awesome. And seventh grade was great also. Like, I think that's how death is. It's like you have this moment and then it's over and you're on to the next thing. And what that next thing is, we don't know and we're always afraid of the unknown. And so um, to me, that's what it's about. And so I think when we die, we're with God immediately. And it's obvious to us that our bodies are here. And then there's this idea in scripture that there'll be a resurrection where our bodies catch up with our souls I have no idea what that's like or what that's about. But I love the idea because it means that there's like this physical, tangible earthiness to God that connects our bodies and souls, and there's something great about that for me. But I don't know what it means. So if you have an idea, feel free to share that with me. Um, What did you learn in seminary that you use the most? And what did you learn in seminary that you never use? Um, the thing I learned in seminary wasn't an intentional learning, really. Uh, I went to seminary in Denver, and uh, Pew Research came out with a study a few years ago that said Denver, Colorado, and Portland, Oregon are the least religious cities in the nation. And I'm so glad that I went to seminary in one of those two cities. My seminary had about 43 different denominations represented in it. Um, and it was, it was a seminary within a school of theology, so there were people who were there who were not even Christian. There were atheists that I had classes with who were interested in the study of belief. And so having interactions with them and learning how they think about things gave me the ability to be like out at the soccer fields in Denver with my kids and have conversations with people who had never, ever met a pastor, period, had never met one. Like, I remember having conversations where people would say like, well, how did you get to Denver? Because Denver's kind of like college. Nobody is from there. People just move there. And they would say, uh, why are you in Denver? And I'd say, well, I came here to go to grad school because if I said seminary, it's just like, what the heck is that? And then they would say, oh, cool. Well, what are you studying? And I would say theology because if I said, well, I'm getting a master's of divinity, well, who the heck knows what that means anyway? Like, I don't even know what that means. And then they would say, well, what are you going to do with that? And I'd say, well, I'm going to be a pastor. And they would say, a Christian pastor? Yeah. Oh, I've never met a Christian pastor. And the doors were wide open at that point. People were so interested and intrigued by spiritual things. And so that's what I learned in seminary was to how to have conversations around spiritual ideas that I could connect back to my idea of who God is and what Jesus was about. The thing that I learned in seminary that I never use, I, ha- I don't remember it because I never use it. Uh, just no idea. And then, uh, how has the practice of not using a pulpit changed preaching? 
I'm just going to answer this from my own personal perspective. Um, when I write a sermon, what I do is I, uh, I usually start with scripture instead of an idea. I don't want a proof text, so I start with scripture. And then I study that scripture, and then whatever ideas pop into my head about how that relates to culture, I study those ideas and culture, and I see how they overlap. And then I start writing my sermon, and I, basically I'll write an outline, and then I'll fill, fill the outline in in very detailed form. And then um, I study that outline, and then I go back, and I rewrite the outline from memory. And then I take one more step, and I just write the, like, I don't put the full detailed outline. I just put the bullet points of the outline and from memory on sticky notes, and I put them in my Bible, and then I preach. I used to preach from behind the pulpit, and I felt anchored to it. And I felt anchored to the manuscript also. And it seemed like I just wasn't connecting with you all as much. I mean, I haven't done that here, but uh, I just I didn't connect with the congregation as much. And so I like to move out from away from that. And if you've noticed, like, I come closer, and a lot of times I get lo like closer and closer because I want to be here with you instead of like up here amongst the holy of holies and da, 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 you know like that's just I just can't do that. Yeah, Sean needs me. To I'm better at staying up here now than I used to be because there's like feedback loops and stuff that I never had to deal with before. I've got one. Uh, we have time for one more, I think. Oh yeah, this is a good one. You're gonna love this one. Jesus said to forgive 70 times seven. Does that mean a good Christian must forgive Trump? <laughs> Your favorite question, right? You thought I was gonna stay away from politics. The answer is yes. A good Christian should forgive Donald Trump. And a good Christian should forgive Barack Obama. And a good Christian for, should forgive George W. Bush. And a good Christian should forgive Bill Clinton. And a good Christian should forgive George H. Bush. And a good Christian should forgive Ronald Reagan. I could keep going, probably. But a good Christian should forgive me. And a good Christian should forgive you. Like, that's the whole thing, right? Like. That's kind of the heart of the issue, is yes, we should be people who forgive because we are forgiven. And, and it's in that forgiveness that we are set free. Now I'm about to start preaching. We're set free. Because when we hold on to things, like that starts to control us. And I'm telling you right now, that is a sin. That's, that's pretty close to blasphemy making ourselves the center of the universe instead of the fact that we can actually be forgiven and forgive other people and be freed to live the life that really is life. It's like you unhitch and take off the heavy backpack and then you can just move. I, like, when I go elk hunting, I hate having a big backpack and a bunch of junk on because it just, it just gets uncomfortable, and it weighs you down, and your legs start burning faster. So, like, I try to be a minimalist and take as few things as I can so that I can move. And I want to move through my life spiritually that way, too, unhitched as much as I can so that I can live a free life. And that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for the world. I really think that, like, if we were people who really took Jesus seriously and practiced the art and spiritual practices of forgiveness 
the world would be a different place all around. And it's countercultural also. People would think we are absolutely bonkers if we were the kind of forgiving people that we should be. In fact, it may cost us our lives. But how beautiful of a life would that be?